0: Hello, and welcome to this week's European Conversations podcast brought to you by the European Movement in Scotland. I'm Kirsty Hughes, and today I'm in conversation with Irish politician Neil Richmond, TD. Neil is Fina Gale's spokesman on European affairs, and he's former chair of the Irish Brexit Committee. Neil, the state of the EU at the moment, it, it's obviously in a very difficult situation. We've got the COVID crisis, more positively, we've got plans for a European Green Deal, but that's obviously in the face of a huge climate change challenge. Are you uh, an optimist or a pessimist about the EU's ability to manage these crises?
1: Oh, I'm absolutely an optimist, Kirsty. I think the EU is born out of crisis, the EU is in constant uh, crisis. Uh, mode, be it dealing with the post-war clear-up of the early years, dealing with the oil crisis, dealing with the collapse of communism, the financial crisis, Brexit, and now facing into the worst global pandemic in a century. But regardless of any thoughts on that, there's still so many challenges and opportunity for the EU, and if anything, for people like me, the EU is more relevant now than ever before.
0: And we see quite a, quite a barney at the moment going on between the EU member states and the European Parliament over the COVID recovery fund. But, but do you think, assuming that gets resolved, th- this fund is, is quite a big step forward in European integration, isn't it?
1: It's a massive step forward. And the fact that it's been accompanied by euro bonds that have taken to the market so well really shows that Europe is moving on. And a crisis of the size of the COVID pandemic requires a large response. And that's the strength of the EU. 27 individual member states wouldn't have been able to respond to this level. Um, we're definitely not finished with this pandemic yet. But I think um, certainly what has been done in relation to the, you, you describe it as barney between the institutions and the parliament and the member states, but it's constant dialogue. And it's something we should actually embrace.
0: And and that leads me on to a specific question about Ireland, as as you say, there's 27 member states, Ireland is a relatively small one, and and yet a lot of people, me included, would say Ireland really looks quite influential in the European Union. Is that because it's it's made choices to be very much in in the core EU group, it joined the Euro, it participates in almost everything, is that good diplomacy and strategy, or is that a bit of a
1: rose-tinted view? No, it's it's very deliberate. Um, we take the EU very seriously. Um, the whole, everything that Ireland has been able to achieve since joining the EC originally has been reflected in our societal opinion. And a lot of people point to two European referenda that we rejected and subsequently ratified as maybe a euro sceptic change. It's not. It's just we believe focused in it. And we have a situation at the moment. We have an Irish woman as European Commissioner for Financial Services an Irishman as president of the Eurogroup and an Irishman as chief economist to the ECB. Previously, we've had two Irish people as secretary generals of the European Commission. The people we send to the European Parliament are generally very high-ranking politicians. They're former ministers. They're very high profile. It's seen as a real step up for many people from domestic politics. And again, we ensure that through the financial crisis, we had all our embassies throughout the EU and each member state capital remained open and our permanent rep in Brussels is staffed with probably our finest diplomats Um, definitely the perm rep our embassy in London and our embassy in Washington are our three most important postings and it's seen as the prized diplomatic position to be the ambassador to the EU but we see it quite simply we're a small country we're a sovereign independent country but being part of the EU is important for us in having any say on the world stage And that's why we need to take the EU seriously, to invest the effort, the money and the time into making sure we have a truly influential role through that. And that equally, we make sure that our population knows what work is going on, which is why Eurobarometer had EU, I suppose, the remain question at 84 percent in the last poll in Ireland.
0: It is is quite extraordinary, isn't it? I I saw that Ireland has one of the strongest supports for the EU across the 27. It must, you know, it's four years more since the Brexit vote, but it must for you, when you describe the amount of influence Ireland has, it must still seem very baffling, the UK decision, given that as a larger member state, the UK also had a lot of influence, didn't it, down the
1: years? I think baffling is the polite term. Um, Like one thing that I would have noticed, and I'd be very concerned of Brexit contagion, Prior to the referendum, but subsequent to that, I think most people have seen an element of sense. But the way the EU was reported in mainstream British media and the way it was treated by British politicians ultimately is what led to Brexit. And you can see it creeping into Irish politics at times, but very rarely. We saw it in the financial crisis and we see it in all member states. The EU is an easy punching bag. And that could be for Salvini in Italy, for Le Pen in France, for UKIP and the Tory right wing. But ultimately, if you're going to criticize the EU, you have to then identify and give a credit for the very real achievements and the successes of the EU far outweigh, far outweigh any of the failures or defeats. But yet, when there's big decisions made on a European level, we don't hear about it. But when someone misrepresents a directive on straight bananas or something like that, it's front page news for a certain cohort. And so to see the how Brexit came about and like the influence of the UK in European institutions was massive. I know we in Ireland relied on the UK on so many areas, um, but ultimately the engagement from the UK in the European process paled in comparison to the French and German counterparts. Now, you could write many theses on the psychology behind this, but what it resulted in and what Brexit has resulted in is a huge own goal for the for the UK. It may feel good for some people, but that, you know, on a emotive nationalist sense, but the practical realities, be the economic and social, are absolutely damning.
0: And at the moment, obviously, the talks are carrying on intensively, day, day by day, include, including the weekend, uh, after what I've been calling Boris Johnson's tantrum after the EU summit the other week. Boris Johnson is said to still not be sure whether he wants a deal or no deal, perhaps to be waiting to see whether Trump gets re-elected despite the polls. What's what's your view on that, that he doesn't apparently even know which way he wants to go?
1: Well, as he said himself a year ago, a failure to get a deal would be a failure in statecraft. The need for a deal is quite clear for everyone involved in this, the EU, the UK, Ireland. The people who need a deal most is the UK. Like, I talk to European colleagues every day and the vast majority of them have moved on from Brexit. Um, but they can't understand why the UK is leaving, obviously, but why you'd leave without a deal, and dress it up as an Australian terms if you'd like, but the economic impact will be cutting. So I assume and hope, maybe I don't hope, that Treasury officials are being quite clear that this is the real impact of leaving without a deal, multiplied by the economic impact of COVID. But I suppose when you look at the Prime Minister and you look at his track record here, and you look at the very extreme backbenches real ideological purists who consistently push this it's what maybe what they can dress up electorally as a success and ultimately if a deal is secured in the next few weeks um, and what we've seen over the last few weeks as well we in the European side will accept it and be glad there is a deal but we won't be championing it as a great victory although we do expect London to be saying well this is the great win and we saw it with the withdrawal agreement at the end of the day this is just a damage limitation exercise for everyone But ultimately, you're not going to call it that if you believed in Brexit in the first place.
0: I I agree with that. Even even if we get to a deal and and I still think and hope we're more likely to, it's it's going to be very economically damaging, just not quite as damaging as as the the chaos of a no deal. If it it was a no deal, uh, apart from the economic damage, what do you think that would do in the short run to EU-UK political relationships it, it put them in a very difficult place wouldn't it
1: no yeah absolutely it would be very frosty and this notion that some people push out that well we'll crash out and then we'll start negotiations and we'll get a series of mini deals that won't wash a lot of the misunderstanding particularly in England Kirstie has been that for the EU that they, they see the UK as a big valuable prize ultimately the challenge that Brexit presents is the existential challenge to the European Union We have seen that being part of the EU means something, that there is an obvious reward. But if someone leaves and leaves on bad terms, why would you then reward them? And this is something that, depending on who you talk to, is seen as as being absolutely baffling. But it's quite clear that if there is no deal, that relations won't be good, um, regardless of how many times people say, oh, well, good spirit and neighbourly and all that, they'll be very formulaic. The second part of that is to ensure then that the terms of the withdrawal agreement are met. These aren't negotiations. This is an international treaty that protects, first and foremost, the peace treaty. Um, So if the UK then, in turn, through the internal market bill or the finance bill, aren't prepared to protect um, the withdrawal agreement that they have ratified, then there will, of course, be continuing legal proceedings from the EU. And so you have the UK leaving a union that has been a member of for over 45 years, not just on bad terms, but being sued in the process.
0: It is quite quite extraordinary, isn't it? As, as you say, I mean, you were talking about no deal, but even if there is a very thin deal, that does require Boris Johnson and the UK government to step back from breaking international law as they've done in the internal market bill, and that would be part of the deal. Whereas if there's no deal, that's still going to be rumbling on and, and come to the fore. That, that brings me to another a question about UK-Ireland relationships. Brexit is damaging not just to the UK, but obviously to uh, several of the EU member states, perhaps none more so than Ireland. And, and what we've seen, I think, in the last four years is a lot of focus, rightly enough, on the question of the Irish border, the Irish peace process, and now more recently on the Northern Ireland Protocol there's been much less attention on the fact that between mainland Britain and the Republic of Ireland, there's also now going to be an EU external border. And that that's going to cause a lot of economic damage to, to the Republic of Ireland as, as well as to Britain. And, and yet, going back to one of my earlier questions, Irish politicians and diplomats seem so sort of steady and, and mature and grown up on this. I mean, they must be holding back a lot of well, anger even, you know, this is un- unchosen by Ireland, damage to the Irish economy.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like we're, when you're a teenager and you have a party and your parents come home, they're not necessarily angry, but they're disappointed. And that's certainly our opinion at the moment. The UK is a very, the UK as a whole, Great Britain is a very good trading partner of Ireland. But I think it's important to put in context that when we joined the EEC in 1973, 60% of our exports went to the UK. That's down to about 11% now. The UK is behind Belgium. It's on a par with France and Germany. Um, Ireland is a very important economic partner with the UK. We are a, a bigger export market than the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China all put together. But that's often missed. And many times I'm being interviewed or we have conversations on British media, it's all about, well, the economic hit for Ireland. The economic hit for the UK is so much greater. And what we have put a huge focus on, always through our European membership, but particularly in the last four years, is the diversification. It's increasing our exports within the internal market of the EU, but also um, using EU trade deals to develop better trading relationships with South Korea, Japan, and Mexico for very real products. The next challenge for us is, of course, access. So as I said, our biggest export market by a country mile is the EU as a whole. A lot of our goods, however, do go direct through uh, Great Britain. You know, they go from Dublin, Holyhead, Dover, Calais. We're increasing the level of direct shipping every day. We still have capacity to make sure that um, exports can go straight from rosslare to Cherbourg or Zabrug or Ostend or Lisbon, Duisburg, all through it. And ultimately, that's where our future is, because if we leave without a deal, you'll see Irish beef costing 40 percent more in Great Britain than before. One of the big exports we have to Scotland in particular is dairy products. It's very hard to eat any shortbread in Scotland without it having been made with Irish butter. But we have to look at the other markets and the economic impact in the medium term to Ireland will be significantly less than that to the UK.
0: I think that's clear. The amount of self-damage the UK is doing to itself dwarfs everything else, but equally the lack of UK attention to the damage it's doing to other countries tells you something perhaps about the state of UK politics. One one sort of final question on on these Brexit issues, if there is a deal, as as you said earlier, it's going to be a fairly thin and and still harmful deal in, in terms of damage to UK EU trade, but at least it won't be the the frosty upset of a, a no deal. Looking forward then from January next year and thinking about the future EU-UK relationship, what, what would be your main both hopes and fears for that future relationship?
1: I suppose my main hope um, specific to Ireland is there's rightly been a lot of talk about the peace process but The Good Friday Agreement provides us with the institutional tools to ensure that there's a very good, direct relationship between Ireland and the UK, a relationship that no one else in the EU is able to have. We have the British-Irish, we have the North-South Ministerial Council, we have the British-Irish Parliamentary Assembly. We have all these institutional tools that, to be honest, haven't been used enough, but post-Brexit are going to be so much more important, as are our bilateral ties with Wales and scotland we have consul generals in edinburgh and Cardiff for a reason moreover between the eu and the uk look i'll be quite frank my long-term goal is that in a generation or however long that the uk apply to rejoin the eu and um, i'm not happy that the, the uk is leaving and i don't think brexit needs to be permanent and uh, it is a very sad event but in the meantime we need to have the closest possible relationship and perhaps show why european membership is so worthwhile the,
0: the rejoining question is an interesting one certainly there's people in the uk who haven't given up on that as an idea but it's not something probably that's going to happen in the short run is it i suspect in the next five to ten years the eu wouldn't even welcome such a change of heart it might be too soon perhaps not for ireland but perhaps for france or italy for instance
1: yeah for sure that and that this has been true throughout this process trying to keep continental colleagues on one hand still interested in the Brexit process and on the other hand trying to stop them from wanting to be vengeful. Because you see some of the rhetoric that's been put back by certain backbenchers, by certain former MEPs, the vitriol directed through the EU, indeed to Ireland, mixed with sheer levels of ignorance. Um, You know, the amount of times Arch Brexiters have said Ireland should rejoin the UK. It's trying to keep a lid on that. So That's why I said it'd be a generation before that question of possible rejoining is ever is ever real.
0: Talking about generations, if I could move on to a couple of questions about the debate in Scotland over independence, as as you know, the, the position of the Scottish government is that it wants independence in the EU and that Brexit is one of the reasons it wants another independence referendum soon, despite it not being a generation since 2014, which Alex Salmond said at one point during during that campaign. Uh, There's quite a bit of debate about whether and how easily an independent Scotland could rejoin the EU. Is is that going to be easy, swift or difficult and slow? What's your view on that?
1: Well, it's certainly possible, and it's certainly a lot easier than when the first referendum happened in 2014. The fact that the UK has left the EU means it doesn't have any sort of role or say in this, and I'm sure a lot of people in Scotland will remember the very blunt um, involvement of José Manuel Barroso in the previous referendum. The, the mood has clearly changed in European circles, and we saw it by, from successive Spanish prime ministers saying that they would never object um, to a possible, the possibility of an independent Scotland applying to join like they would have previously bearing Catalonia in mind. We also saw just this past weekend Donald Tusk, who was up until recently president of the European Council, but is president of the EPP group, which my own party, Fine Gael, the Christian Democrat group that we belong to, which would be traditionally centre-right conservatives in some people's mind, saying that, of course, Scotland would be welcome back. And ultimately, if, and I've, I offer no opinion on the Council, but if hypothetically Scotland was to vote for independence and they would apply to join the EU, then it would be no different than any other European country applying. If Scotland can meet the Copenhagen criteria, um, I would see in some ways an appetite for them to join the EU. And I know from an Irish perspective, the possibility of having another English speaking common law jurisdiction of which we have a ridiculous amount of um, similarities within the European Union would be something we'd, of course, welcome. Um, but, of course, these aren't decisions for us. It's for the people of Scotland.
0: So, so as you say, quite likely a lot more sympathy this time around from, from some EU governments, at least, than than in 2014. One, one of the specific issues that comes up a, a lot here, brought up by those who oppose independence, is the EU having a 3% budget deficit rule and how long it might take an independent Scotland to reach that. Do, do you think it's absolutely vital that an independent Scotland would reach that before joining the EU? Or might there be a little bit of leeway so, like Croatia, it might get down to 4 or 5% and come in on a kind of transition phase over something like that?
1: Yeah, a transition phase with a very clear budgetary plan to get it in line um, would absolutely be something that would be open for consideration. And we saw it not just with Croatia, but with um, Bulgaria and Romania as well. You know, Ultimately, the EU hasn't expanded for seven years now. Um, which is one of the longest stretches it's gone without an expansion. Um, and there is obviously advanced talks with other countries, particularly in the Western Balkans region, but they have far greater democratic and legacy. They aren't, um, aren't applicable to Scotland. Um, I think the budgetary issue is, of course, something that isn't set in stone. And for a country, a progressive Western liberal democracy like Scotland, I have absolutely no doubt that there'll be an element of a transition or realism at least.
0: And as as you know, because I I know you're a good friend of sort of Scottish-Irish relations, there's quite a bit of debate here about how to actually get to another independence referendum. Boris Johnson has said no for now. If if there was, for instance, an advisory referendum in Scotland, one that London said it didn't recognise... How do you think the EU would, would respond? I mean, I, I would expect it to stand back at that point and say, once you've got an agreement between London and Edinburgh, then then tell us you know, where, where you're at. Something that looks a bit more like a Cat- Catalan advisory referendum would, would be neuralgic, wouldn't it, to the EU?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It wouldn't be something that would actually be received that well, um, and the EU has come in for some criticism, justified not justified in relation to their response to what's happened in Catalonia of course Spain is still a member state the UK isn't going to isn't a member state anymore so it's slightly different Um, but certainly an advisory referendum and we we have that debate in Ireland as well all the time it's it's not and let's not forget Brexit was an advisory referendum as well Kirsty it's not something that would be looked upon as favourably by the EU when it comes to Scotland It's up to Scotland to sort out the detail with the UK government in London. If Scotland was to legally vote to be independent, that's when, of course, the EU would be open to any discussions. But before that, it's it's hypothetical and we can merely talk about through the process and always advise to do things as within the law as, as is possible.
0: And just one one last question coming back to the present rather than possible futures. As as you just said, the UK is already outside the EU from January. It will be outside its Single Market and Customs Union. How would you advise Scotland as a small country within a a third state, as the UK will become and will be called a third country? What can Scotland do to strengthen its EU and European relations in the future despite Brexit?
1: I think Scotland has already started that process very well. Um, So we have a Scottish government office here in Dublin within the British Embassy. Um, Obviously, we have our consul in Edinburgh. But the growing number of Scottish offices, be they in in Brussels, uh, to the EU, be they in Berlin, Paris, that is absolutely the way to go. To have a a Scottish government representation in each of the 27 member states should be a very realistic short-term goal for the Scottish government to give that very distinct Scottish opinion. And when we look at some of the the Scottish government's policies, particularly when it comes to freedom of movement and immigration. They're quite different um, than the current British administration, or at least the rhetoric that surrounds some of the Home Secretary's comments. And seeing that um, and seeing Scotland's outward looking approach being spread across the EU is vitally important. We need to see the very key bilateral ties. Ireland has a historically strong economic and social relationship with Scotland. But it's also a growing one. So it's no longer about following um, farming seasons, but it's about financial services, higher education, uh, fintech, pharma, all these important things. And that goes for every single EU member state. And to know that the huge amount of EU citizens that are remaining living in Scotland and contributing to the economy, be it in Inverness or Edinburgh or wherever it may be. And that story needs to be told. And I think certainly a lot of work has been started by the Scottish government but it really needs to be accelerated uh, in the post brexit period.
0: That's really very interesting. So we need to step up is the the message. Uh, And I'm sure there'll be lots of candidates for for jobs across the 27 EU member states representing Scotland. There we must leave it. Neil Richmond, many thanks for talking to me today. Thank you, Kirsty. That was this week's European Conversations podcast. I'm Kirsty Hughes, and I was in conversation with Neil Richmond.